0: Four, you pretty much learn to do everything else. Reading and writing is a matter of, of first importance, if you will. It's something that you use uh, the rest of your life. It's something that, that grounds everything else. If you, if you cannot read and write well, you are going to struggle. Uh, even if you take your education as far as you possibly can, you are never going to move beyond Reading and writing. It's a matter of first importance. If you're a carpenter, using a hammer and a nail is a matter of first importance. It doesn't matter how fancy you can make your woodwork, if you can't nail it to the wall, you aren't going to be a good carpenter. So it is with the Christian faith. The gospel, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a matter of first importance importance. It's not something that we start with and then we move beyond. It's not something that we put off or can forget about and go into deeper and and more meaningful things. Rather, it is like the foundation that it needs to be laid well and, and understood so that everything else is built on top of that. And if the foundation is bad, the rest of the house is going to be off. It's a matter of first importance. So our main point this morning is simply this. As believers, we must continue to hold to the gospel as a matter of first importance. Let me encourage you. The gospel is not something that we should become bored with. It's not something that should become old hat in our lives this is not the sermon where you tune out and you say this is for the unbeliever to hear the gospel but rather the gospel is something that each and every one of us if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ we have grounded our lives on these truths on these things that happened to Jesus his death and resurrection and to abandon them, to, to walk away from them, moves us away from the Lord. It moves us off the gospel. We must continue to hold to the gospel as a matter of first importance. So, um, I have two points this morning. The first one is simply going to be, we have believed and must continue to believe the gospel The gospel is how you get saved. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. It is the foundation of the Christian life. We have believed and we must continue to believe in the gospel. So let me give you just an idea of the problem at Corinth. They were having some problems when it came to the resurrection. They were denying it. If you look down at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, which I didn't read earlier... It says in verse 12, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So Corinth is one of those churches. It had a lot of problems. The ancient city of Corinth was kind of like the Las Vegas of its day. Uh, it was a party town, if you will. There was a lot of immorality that went on in the city. And so when these people became Christians, they were coming out of a rough background, surrounded by Greek culture, surrounded by pagan temples, surrounded by uh, some awful stuff. And they needed to learn the Christian faith. And somewhere along the way, they got swept up and captivated by some things. And it, and it led to a lot of problems through the book of Corinthians. And we get to the end and we find out some, now not all, but some of these believers or people that were attending the church and claiming to believers were actually denying the resurrection of the dead. It almost seems like they didn't follow the logic through because Paul will go on and say, if there is no resurrection of the dead, how can Jesus Christ have been raised from the dead? And we'll look at this in some of the coming weeks. But we know from... Uh, Greek thought that that Greeks typically denied that there was any resurrection of the dead. So there's an ancient work. And in it, it says this. This is a Greek work. Once a man has died and the dust soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. And Paul gets to to the Areopagus, which is in Athens. Uh, he stands up in the Areopagus and he preaches about Jesus and he announces the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then in Acts 17, verse 32, it says, now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Uh, Greek culture in many ways was was much like people in our day. If you talk to an unbeliever and say Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, there was a resurrection from the dead. They will look at you like you're weird. They will say to you, dead people don't rise from the dead. They don't come back to life. The early church knew this, and this is why what happened to Jesus was so radical. But even more so, Greek thought kind of ruled all of that out their idea of gods and what God, the gods would do was not involved in gods who would raise the dead and so somewhere along the way the corinthian church got captivated by this and it leads them to start this slippery slope of if they follow the logic through they will have abandoned the very gospel by which they're saved they were looking around at their people and some of the people were saying There is no future resurrection of the dead. Let me just point out to you that our future hope is not only going to heaven when we die, but one day the ultimate hope, the final hope, is the resurrection of our bodies. Being in heaven as a spirit is just the intermediate state. It's temporary. When we die, our bodies go into the grave. We go up into heaven. But the final hope is our bodies are raised from the dead, our spirits come back with Christ and our body and our spirit are reunited and we get a resurrection body in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our hope and that is grounded on Jesus and his death and ultimately his resurrection. We get what happened to him. And if you go around saying there isn't a future resurrection and that won't happen, the logic is then, well, then it must not have happened to Jesus. And that's where the Corinthians have gone with this. But this is foundational to the Christian walk. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So the gospel is what we believed and it's what we need to hold fast to. Look at verses one and two. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Most of the Corinthians, despite all of their problems, have not walked away from the gospel. So Paul goes back to these matters of first importance. He is like a inspector of the house going down into the basement and kicking the walls and saying, guys, this is our foundation. This is what you're grounded on. This is what you believed This is what you stand in as a Christian and you are being saved by this. If you really are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a genuine believer, and you see this in Corinth, a genuine believer can have a lot of muddled errors in their thinking, even sins cropping up and still be a believer And God is patient and God is gracious and he works this process over time of of making us more like him. But a genuine believer cannot be one who turns away from the gospel. Notice what he says, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Continuing in the salvation that we professed in the Lord Jesus Christ entails continuing to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We really do as Christians walk by faith. Paul says in Colossians, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach to him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, am a minister. This idea of if you hold fast to the word I preach you, unless you believed in vain, this word vain has the idea of of being without careful thought, without thinking it through, without consideration unless you believed in a sort of haphazard manner. Someone who just maybe says, well, yeah, Jesus died and rose again, but doesn't think through what those professions of faith actually mean, who doesn't actually in their mind and in their heart acknowledge, yes, Jesus really did rise from the dead. Sometimes when we lead someone to the Lord, we, we invite them to pray something we call sometimes the sinner's prayer. And sometimes we can be very specific with the wording. And that is that is very good and that is very helpful. But it is not merely by saying the words. It is not just a matter of uh, of just spitting them out that makes us saved. Salvation and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not a, a just going through the motions We believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. When we confess these things with our mouth, we are we are acknowledging them to be true. We have we have thought about them. The Lord has laid conviction upon our hearts there's an inward change that is going on. And Paul warns them lest you have believed in vain, lest you are careless about this, lest you are haphazard. There are times that you will encounter people and you will ask them, are you a Christian? They will say, oh, yes. And then you begin to ask them, how how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I walked down the aisle one time when my pastor asked if I wanted to be a Christian. That can be all well and good, and I'm not opposed to that. But just because you walk down the aisle or just because your your words go, your lips go through the motion of saying the word doesn't mean you're saved. One who is saved is one who is put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've believed in these things. You stand upon these things. You acknowledge in your heart that they are true. And not just in an intellectual sense, but the fact that they are true means Jesus can actually save me. He is actually Lord of all things. You and I must stand firm in the faith. We must continue in what we have first believed. Let that be an encouragement to you wherever you are in your spiritual life. Stand firm. Hold fast to those those things that you've first believed. And it's good to to go back and to refresh ourselves in them. When my when my kids are, are getting sloppy in their handwriting you you set them down and you get a piece of paper and you you get them to write the basic things again, to practice. Sometimes for me, I, I learned Greek and Hebrew years ago when I was in Bible college. Well, Greek, Hebrew was seminary, but Greek I learned in Bible college. And and you get going and you, uh, uh, you you study it. And I'm at a point where I'm I'm a little more comfortable in it now. But sometimes I forget the Greek alphabet. I know what's in the alphabet, but I, I can't always say it in order. Or sometimes I forget. I, I know what the letter looks like, but I was looking. It was the Hebrew. The other day. I was looking at one and I'm like, what's the name of that? I know it translates to an L, but what what is that? And And you have to go back and you have to dwell on the matter of first importance. You feel silly. I'm relearning the alphabet. Sometimes that's how it is with the gospel. To remind ourselves what we are standing firm on we we go over it again, we remind ourselves we we say the Christian life is founded on this yes, there are a lot of other things like a house that are built on top of it, but I got to look at the foundation I got to say the gospel matters more than anything else so the gospel was preached to the Corinthians and they had believed it look at verse eleven. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, so you believed. All of the apostles preached the same gospel message. How do you in our day and age tell a a true church from a false church? Well, the first thing is, do they preach the gospel? That Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. That He came to earth as truly man. That He died on the cross. That He rose again from the dead. There are a lot of things in a church that can be extra trappings. But the foundation needs to be, is the gospel there? Paul goes so far with the church of Galatians when they're walking astray from the gospel. And he says, even if an angel from God Comes down and proclaims a different gospel, let him be accursed. And there are many cults out there today that that follow the revelation of angels. If it's not the gospel, it doesn't matter who pretends to preach it or who claims that it came to them from someone or something. Do not abandon the gospel. Here is a church for us. The gospel needs to be the most important thing. There are a lot of good and exciting things to have in a church. And after everything the church has been through in the past years, we're going to get back to some of that. Having a youth group, having a larger children's Sunday school program. We're doing our second Easter egg hunt again this year. We're going to do a vacation Bible school. All of that is good and great and fun and exciting and important for reaching out. But it is all meaningless unless it's grounded on the gospel. The matters of first importance for your life, for the life of the church. Second, this morning, uh, as I've already been saying, Jesus's death and resurrection are of first importance. So what I want to do now is I want to unpack what Paul puts in here as a matter of first importance. So look at verse three, the, the beginning, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul has passed on the truth to them. He has Preached it. He received the gospel on the the road to Damascus. We we actually happened to be in that a few weeks ago in Acts. It came down as God opened up the heaven. He's received it, and all Paul does is he's a faithful servant passing it on. This is why Paul says to Timothy in, in First Timothy to guard the good deposit that was given to him. We as the church are not to be inventing new things. We we take the gospel, the matter of first importance, and we pass it on. Uh, the pastor is not a a, a a a guy running a startup business who is a a phenomenal entrepreneur who can come up with all kinds of new things. The pastor is the one who is to lead the church in guarding the good deposit. Now, it's fun and good and helpful when we do some things that are different or some things that are new or we try a different way of reaching out or maybe we try a different method of of teaching children Sunday school or a different time or all those sorts of things. But at the core of the pastor's mission is to guard the good deposit, not to reinvent the wheel, so to speak but to see that the same thing that has been passed on for 2,000 years is passed on once again to all of you and to your children and to your grandchildren. It is of first importance. Some of you might, this analogy just popped into my head. Some of you might know with the... um, and if there are any teachers here that I offend, I, I apologize ahead of time. Some of you might know with the, the Common Core uh, program, they teach you how to do math differently. It's, it's like this new math. And instead of doing math uh, vertically like we always used to do the, the right way, you, you do it horizontally. And it can, be, it can be so frustrating when you're a parent because it takes like six extra steps to teach your kid to do the math problem. And you have to, to learn how to redo the math. Math is one of those things that's of first importance and, and the sort of stodgy, let's do it the way it's always been done in me, says, why can't we just do it the easy way? Just put the numbers vertically and learn basic addition and subtraction. Well, that's that's not really here nor there. But the important thing is it's of first importance. And whatever you think of Common Core, and I'm not here to critique it when it comes to the gospel, you don't. Change it. You don't change it to pass it on to people. You keep it in its unadulterated form. So what is the gospel? Paul outlines... Five things that i 've noticed in in these passages, and um, maybe you could say it 's just to the death and resurrection, but i 'm going to break some of these up a little bit to to emphasize. so look with me at verses three and four, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that so this is the matters of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, so First, the death and burial of Christ is of first importance. Jesus died on a cross. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was crucified. He didn't live out his life. He didn't die by an accident. He was put to death on the cross. The second thing is why he died on the cross. Notice it says that Christ died for our sins. This is I'm, I'm breaking this up maybe a little artificially, but notice this aspect that is of first importance. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a substitutionary death. He stood in our place for our sins. You cannot compromise this. This is a matter of first. Importance. And there are people, there are places, there are churches, there are theologians out there today, there are pastors out there today that will say, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but substitution, him paying for our sins, that sounds barbaric. They will say, it, you know, it was sort of they will they will come up with other reasons for why Jesus Christ died on the cross. Well, God didn't. Put him there. God didn't really want him to go there. Or it was some sort of example for all of us. Look at how how Jesus was this great servant. Well, he certainly was a great servant. And and it is an example. But it's also more than that. He died for our sins. What put him there? What could lead God the Father to send His Son to earth to have Him undergo such a horrible death. It was the guilt of our sins that the Lord Jesus Christ stood in our place and bore the full weight of the wrath of God that God has against our sins so that God could in the Lord Jesus Christ completely remove them because He has exhausted the punishment. The full cup of God's wrath that He has for sin, that imagery in scripture in the Old and New Testament, that full cup is, is completely poured out onto Jesus. My sins, the judgment in that cup that I deserve being poured out to Him and, and every last drop is, is shaken onto Him while He is on the cross. So that cup is completely empty if I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ because He has paid for every sin past, present, and future when I trust in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ bore all of the legal weight of our sins, all of the guilt, all of the, the punishment. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one who is hanged on a tree. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with him his wounds we, by his wounds we are healed and we all like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord laid on him the iniquity of us all or the sins or the guilt of our sin the lord laid on him iniquities of us all it's a matter of first importance Christ died for our sin that language is very clear in our place on our behalf representing us third matter of first importance is the resurrection of Christ on the third day the resurrection means that, that Jesus came back to life. It means that His body was in the grave. He was completely dead. His spirit, His human spirit, had departed the body. They put it in the tomb. It was buried there for three days. And then it came back to life. Jesus' spirit was reunited with the body and He walked up out of that grave when the the women and then the disciples went to find the body of Jesus, it wasn't there. Resurrection means the body comes back to life. The body also, though, comes back with something better. It can never die again. So, when we get our resurrected bodies, if if we die, our bodies will go in the grave and one day we'll be reunited with them. If you're still alive, if I'm still alive, when the Lord Jesus returns, we we skip death. We jump right to the resurrection. It's going to be really cool. It's going to be this transformation in a twinkling of an eye. It's just, bam, that quick. It's all new. But your body won't be able to die again. It's not going to get old. Your joints aren't going to get stiff. It's not going to ache. It's going to be a body of glory. A body that can go into the presence of God. A body that completely has no sin. No curse that is from creation will be, will be left over. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. Are we still going to get hungry? How old will I be? If you're a grandparent, will I be like I was when I was young? Will my grandkids recognize me? I don't know all the ins and outs, but I know it's going to be a completely new body. Paul talks about it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. There is one glory of the sun. There's another glory of the moon. There's another glory of the stars. For stars differ from stars. So you look at the sky and you see the heaven or you see the sun, you see the moon, you see the stars. They all have different brightness. All have different glories, if you will. And then he says this so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable. That's your, your normal body now. You are born. It is sown, if you will, and, and it, you, you're born and your body is getting old from the moment you're born. You're, we're all going to die. But it is raised, he says, imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. There, you know, we have sin yet in our body. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Even Christ had a body that could succumb to human weakness. Not sin, mind you, but but weakness. He got tired, he got run down, he got hungry. In in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he sweat drops of blood from the anxiety of it. It was a body sown in weakness when he was raised from the dead and when we're raised from the dead it is as paul says raised in power if there is no resurrection there is no salvation from our sins first corinthians fifteen seventeen. and if christ has not been raised your faith is futile you are still in your sins the resurrection is something that really happened to jesus It is a bodily resurrection. And why do I spend so much time teasing out what a resurrection actually is? Because you will from time to time encounter people that will either A, deny the resurrection or B, redefine what resurrection is. Some people think that the early apostles, they just saw visions of who Jesus was. And then they came up with this idea of a resurrection or they think it's some sort of merely spiritual experience that it doesn't matter what happened to the body now that body that jesus has it is not in the tomb it has ascended in its resurrection state into heaven and this is of first importance if you do not believe in the bodily resurrection of the lord jesus christ you are not saved and if a church does not preach and proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter what you say about his death because he would still be dead. He would still be under the curse of sin and we would have no liberation and freedom and redemption from our sins. The resurrection matters. Two other things that I want to draw out here that Paul incorporates in this idea of first importance. And I want you to notice in verse uh, chapter 15, verse three, he says this, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ." Now, at first glance, you just, okay, yeah, it's talking about Jesus, but what I want you to notice is it uses the title. Sometimes we forget. It's not as if Jesus is Jesus' first name and Christ is his last name. Okay? It's not, you know, Mr. Christ, comma Jesus, if he was filling out a form. Christ is, is his title. It comes out of the Old Testament that he is the Messiah. Christ is the word that means anointed. And in the Old Testament, you think about how God would anoint prophets and priests and kings, and they were marked out for a task. And the Old Testament promises a final one. The Anointed one who will be set on the throne of David, who will rule like a king. Jesus is that Christ who died and rose again. What I want you to see is how connected this is to the Old Testament. Jesus is just not just the Messiah for Jews. Paul is talking to Greeks and he is saying this guy is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's that promised King and He died and rose again. 1 John 2.22 says this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you are the the Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but you are a Antichrist. Now, when someone gets saved, you know, I'm not saying they have to know their whole Old Testament. I'm not saying you have to understand all of it. But if you're going along in your Christian walk and you're reading the Old Testament and you're saying, well, this Messiah, that that's not really Jesus. You're walking away from matters of first importance. In Islam, they believe that Jesus was a prophet. Not the Messiah. In, in the early church, there was a heresy called Marcionism where they denied that, that Jesus was the Messiah from the Hebrew Bible. They thought that the word Christ was sort of a, a spiritual part of Jesus. That, that when Jesus died on the cross, some early heretics believed that when the man Jesus died on the cross, this spirit Christ departed. And you'll encounter people today, that the new age, that are kind of like, well, we can all be little Christs. We can all have this Christ in us. Christ means that Jesus is the anointed one that God had chosen, set apart from before the foundations of the world. He is the eternal Son of God. And He died on the cross and He rose again from the dead. And then lastly, notice that these things happened according to Scripture. Paul connects the matters of first importance to the Old Testament. That God had prophesied that these things would happen. That God spoke and fulfilled His will and His Word. We need to remember that the whole Bible, the Old and the New Testament, are our Bible. They're the Word of God. Remember when Paul's writing here and when he says these things have happened according to the Scriptures, the, the New Testament hasn't been collected yet. So he's saying these things happen according to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Bible of the early church. And they see what God has done to fulfill it. And then, of course, as the apostles begin to write these letters, they start put, uh, able, being able to pull together the full Old and New Testament. But these things happened. What God did fulfilled the plan that God had laid down in the Old Testament. I want you to notice one last thing. The eyewitness testimony. The eyewitness testimony in that the apostles, five hundred people, and then Paul himself saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw that He had come back to life. They could give testimony. This is their way of saying, this really happened. Resurrection, the death of Jesus Christ, is not some spiritual principle abstract from what really occurred. Jesus really did carry that cross to Golgotha and die there. And then they took his body down and they carried it to the tomb. And it was in the grave from before sundown on Friday till very early Sunday morning. And when the ladies went out to the tomb, they could not find the body because it had been raised from the dead. That is the matters of first importance. Let me just close with encouraging you and I Don't lose sight of first-importance issues. These things matter. They matter for your spiritual life. It doesn't matter if you're a little kid. This is of first importance for you. It doesn't matter if you're a grown adult, if you've been a Christian for 60 years. It's of first importance. You never move beyond this. Uh, There's a theologian. uh, I wouldn't commend all of his writings to you, but his name is Karl Barth. He wrote, 14 massive volumes of church dogmatics. Big, big, heavy-duty stuff. And someone asked him one time, what's the summary of of your works? And according to the story, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Huge, knowledgeable, smarter-than-me guy. And he didn't forget the matter's of first importance. I'm not commending all of his works, but I am commending to you that spirit of don't forget the first importance. Cherish these things. Pass them along. We should freely have the mindset of what are we doing to, to raise up disciples of the church. The core of it, we are passing on the gospel. Paul says he preached it, they received it, and they stand upon it. We want to preach it. We want to see people receive it. We want to ground people, young and old, to stand upon it. That's how the Lord builds His church. We're going to close with a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just come before You this morning and ask that You would ground us as a church body in, in the matters of first importance, that we would stick to these things, that we would hold fast to them, that you would give us a vision for grounding our lives on the truth. There are so many other things that that are important, but help us not to lose sight of the most important. There are many things that maybe worry us about our world or our culture or the direction it's heading or how people are, are wandering away from you or what is happening in society, Lord, let us not be distracted by those things. Ground us in the matters of first importance. Let us share them with our kids and our grandkids or our nieces, our nephews, our our family. As we gather as a church, may it be something that excites us, uh, that brings us joy, that it doesn't become old hat in our spiritual lives to, to hear the message of Jesus dying on the cross, paying for our sins and rising again from the dead. We just give you all the praise, all the honor and glory. Watch over us as we go out from here. Give us a sweet time of fellowship afterwards and and bring us back into your house next week. In your precious name we pray, amen.